In this episode, we look at goals and assessment of those goals in teaching and learning language. This is the third of five episodes that I'm dedicating to the book Common Ground, Second Language Acquisition Theory Goes to the Classroom. That book is by Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins. They offer actionable insights and takeaways that you can use right away as you set goals for your students and create the assessments that support students moving toward them. As Florencia Henshaw herself says, lots to unpack. So let's jump in. Are you a language teacher looking for some reassurance that what you're doing in the classroom is on the right track? Or maybe you're looking for some ways to teach even more effectively. If you're one or the other or somewhere in between, you've landed in the right place. This is the World Language Classroom Podcast with your host, me, Joshua Cabral. You're about to get tips, tools, and resources so that your students continue to rise in proficiency and communicate with confidence. Let's jump in. Vamos, allons-y. Hello, my friends. Bonjour, mes amis. Hola, mis amigos. Welcome to the World Language Classroom Podcast. I am Joshua Cabral, and thank you, as always, for being here, for taking the time out of your week to look at your teaching, to think about it in different ways, to be reassured that you're on the right track, whatever it means to you to be listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for being here, and kudos to you for being a teacher that wants to always strive to do a little bit better. That's what makes you awesome. So in this episode, I'll be taking on the theme of goals and assessment and really drawing on what Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins talk about in their book, Common Ground. This is the third episode that I have dedicated to this book, and there's so much in it to really grasp onto and to take that theory that's out there about language acquisition and language teaching and make it really applicable to the classroom experience and that reality of what happens in the classroom. So we are going to be looking at goals and the assessments that we can create in the classroom that are really directed towards those goals, and not just really looking at how do you test and assess meeting the goals, but also looking at how do you provide feedback so that you move beyond that goal with students. So to begin, the authors, Henshaw and Hawkins, look at the Actful Proficiency Guidelines. Now, when we use this term, Actful Proficiency Guidelines, you might hear it used different ways. I sometimes come across the words actful proficiency guidelines, sometimes referred to as the performance descriptors. I believe that's what actually actful talks about in their documents. They use the term performance descriptors. You might also hear them referenced as proficiency levels. Regardless of you hear it as proficiency guidelines, performance descriptors, or proficiency levels, they're all the same thing. They're not different things. And what they are used to do is to describe what individuals, our students, our language learners, can do with the language in terms of speaking, writing, listening, and reading. And all of this is done in what is referred to as real-world situations and spontaneous and unrehearsed contexts. So just a clarification on that, though, is even though we say spontaneous and unrehearsed context, when we're talking about proficiency in that realm, it's really about the interpersonal more than anything else. Because when we are referring to presentational writing or presentational speaking, there is a part of that that involves editing the writing and preparing the speaking in advance. So proficiency looks a little different when we're looking at the different modes sometimes. So I think in this case, when we're looking at the performance descriptors, it's really about that spontaneous interpersonal language that we're talking about. 
We are going to get into the difference between proficiency and performance, which come up in there as well, which are not exactly the same thing. So there are some different ways to even look at the terms proficiency and performance. But for our purposes right now, and what we're looking at in the way it's approached in common ground, my understanding of it anyway, is that we are looking at the idea of spontaneous language production and speaking and writing and listening and reading in spontaneous ways, at least for these purposes. As the book goes on and they start to get into output and the presentational mode, it looks a little differently. So our purposes right now, I'm really thinking about interpersonal speaking with this spontaneous way of producing language. As much as we're able to create this idea of real-world experiences and all this spontaneous language in our classroom, so as much as we're able to create this in our classrooms, this is where the chapter sections on what it really looks like in the classroom is helpful because when we say real-world situations for spontaneously using the language, that's very different in the classroom because it almost comes off as manufactured. That's what we have to do because we're not in real-world situations. You know, there's a little coffee shop that just opened up across the street from where I live, and this morning I went in there. It was opened up by a family from Colombia, and so I went in and I spontaneously used my Spanish with them in a way that isn't really going to happen in the classroom. But there are ways of creating those situations for students that is prepping them with that skill of then using it in actual real-world situations. And there are, of course, opportunities for having real-world conversations with classes in other countries or other areas where we are having students engage and interact with speakers of the language that they're learning in the classroom. So there are opportunities to do that, and definitely we want to do that in the classroom. The reality is it's not something that's necessarily going to happen every day. So as we are helping students to prepare for those actual experiences, which I feel is what is really happening in the classroom, then that's where the portions of each chapter in Common Ground, where they look at what it looks like in the classroom, can really help you to envision what those real-world simulated-like experiences might look like in the classroom. Again, you may be doing things that are actual real-world experiences with the language, and those that are working well for you and how you've figured out how to do that and use your class time for that, I would love to know more about that. So please do tweet about it, put it in Facebook groups, so that we can all learn from each other about what those are and how you're going about them. The authors give specific examples of what learners can do at each level, which is a really important place to start. And sometimes when we talk about the novice and the intermediate and advanced levels, it can get a little unclear what is it exactly. And I actually saw a Twitter thread uh, this morning as I got up and looked at Twitter this morning before I recorded this episode, and there was a book discussion about common ground. And the question was asked, what is an appropriate proficiency level that should be expected for a level one class or two years with the language? So it's not always easy to pinpoint. And that's actually part of the discussion I would like to have with Henshaw and Hawkins when I have them in the podcast, because I would really like to dive into that. 
So when we look at the novice, intermediate, and advanced levels, and again, this is all looking at how we're going to create our goals for students in the classroom, we have to have a general idea of what their proficiency level is. Are they the novice, intermediate, or advanced? And there are subcategories within each one of them. But essentially, going from that novice to advanced level language, students are going from single words, we're talking about production here, single words, then memorize chunks and then phrases, eventually moving on to discrete sentences. And this is where students are really starting to begin creating language on their own. And then they have connected sentences, again, created on their own, and then moving on to paragraphs, where it's multiple connected sentences and multiple paragraphs. And we're talking about speaking here. It also goes for writing as well but we're looking linguistically at the word paragraph here. This section of the chapter is where I really bought into the writing of Common Ground and where they described superior language, which goes beyond advanced, but superior language, they actually use the words fabulous fluency and accuracy. And I thought, oh, okay, well, since uh, Henshaw and Hawkins were able to take the word fabulous and use it in a quantifiable way, a scientific term, then I'm going to refer to it as that as well. So if you do, in fact, get to the superior level, you will have fabulous fluency and accuracy. So I just loved that that was a part of the chapter and it was thrown in there. And I remember I was reading Common Ground on a flight back from New Orleans. I was at the AATF conference in New Orleans, and I was reading it on a flight home, and Catherine Ritz, who is here in Massachusetts, she happened to be down at the conference with me. Uh, She was on the same flight as me, and I just busted out laughing because I thought it was the best thing ever, and so I had to get up and find her on the plane and be like, so excuse me, Catherine, is this a technical term? And we both decided absolutely because uh, Henshaw and Hawkins used it in a technical way, in a science scientific way of describing the way that language is produced at the superior level, then we are going to use it the same way. So shout out to Catherine Ritz for helping me come to that decision at 33,000 feet on a flight from New Orleans to Boston. So if you would like to revisit or learn more about the actual proficiency levels, you can actually listen to episode 12 of this podcast. The episode link is in the show notes, and it's where I really dive into the proficiency levels. But it is a good place to start when you're looking at goals and Henshaw and Hawkins also point out that in any given classroom, you will have a mix of proficiency levels, and proficiency is, to quote them, anything but static. So don't be concerned with pinpointing the exact proficiency level of individual students. Just remember to keep goals realistic, that they are going to be able to do something at a particular proficiency level and produce the language that comes with that proficiency level. I personally prefer to create rubrics that make the target objective achievable by the majority of the class and will have room for going beyond and for room to grow. This plays into the whole idea of medals and missions or glow and grow. And so I typically tend to, if you have to use a grading scale, that meeting the goal or target objective is usually going to be in the B plus A minus range. And so that when students are able to 
push themselves above with proficiency, they go into that AA plus range, and then you have the B below that that would be at the point where they're not really meeting that objective yet. So that's going to play out as it will in your classroom, depending on what your grading expectations are within your district or your school. But just make sure that you are leaving room, this would be my advice, leaving room when you're setting goals for students to go above and to have opportunities to meet the goal for sure and have opportunities for providing feedback for going to the goal if they haven't quite met it yet. So I mentioned earlier the difference between proficiency and performance. And so I want to get into that a little bit because that was a big part of what Henshaw and Hawkins also talk about as they go into this whole idea of the actual proficiency levels. So with proficiency and performance, the distinction between proficiency and performance is that proficiency is a spontaneous and unrehearsed task, whereas performance is what a learner is able to do after practicing in the classroom. So usually with various tasks, they are focused on particular forms or vocabulary themes or topics. And then the authors point out that teachers don't necessarily need to choose between performance and proficiency because the two go hand in hand. So for example, the can-do statements, actfuls can-do statements, or your own that you create for a particular unit, they tell some of the performance indicators that correspond with the proficiency benchmarks. So the goal, I would guess, is to have a balance of performance tasks. Those are those tasks that are practiced and you're really working on preparing skills and some skill development. And they lead to proficiency tasks where students draw on the performance tasks to do the spontaneous proficiency tasks or assessment. So this brings us back to the idea that there is not going to be one way or the only way. So with knowledge of these distinctions, you can begin to re-examine and rediscover your approach. So are you doing mostly performance where they're practicing in very specific ways and then are you assessing that? Or are you also providing opportunities for spontaneous tasks and assessing those. And I see, again, this is my take on it, that the performance tasks would be more of a formative grade and that the proficiency tasks would be more of a summative grade because it's spontaneous and unrehearsed, and that's really going to show their proficiency, whereas the performance may show a little bit of a higher proficiency level because of having practice specifically within that theme or those structures. So keeping that question in mind, are we providing opportunities for performance and proficiency? So we want to have a good balance of both. So this is really bringing us into the realm of assessment. So we have been looking at how we can create our goals for students and how we want to make sure that those goals are clearly set within the proficiency level of students, that they will be able to do whatever that can-do statement is, and knowing if that involves producing single words, or does it mean that it's output that is discrete sentences or memorized chunks of language. So whatever that goal is should be within the realm 
of the proficiency level that students can achieve. And again, you want to keep it broad because no two students are going to be at the same place at the same time. But as you're setting goals, keep it within the realm of their general proficiency levels. So then we started to look at how we're going to then assess them. And we looked at performance and we looked at proficiency. So when it comes to assessment, Henshaw and Hawkins use three simple questions to ask when looking at assessment in the three modes. I know I have been focusing on the interpersonal spontaneous speaking, but they do give us some options when it comes to assessing in all of the modes. So the first question that they offer is, is it manageable? So these are really looking at concrete outcomes. Like are there concrete outcomes that students can achieve? Is it appropriate for the level? So remember that text type. Is it single words, memorized phrases, discrete sentences? Is it connected sentences, paragraphs? And then is it reliable? So is it directly dependent on what they can do with the language? So looking at assessments, we have these three questions from the authors of Common Ground. Is it measurable? Is it appropriate for the level? And is it reliable? So backwards planning is essential to meeting the intended goals. And I recently did an entire episode on backwards planning, so I don't want to get into it right now, but it was episode 56. It will be linked in the show notes. It was just a couple of weeks back. So if you would like to do a deep dive into exactly how to go about backwards planner or backwards design, you can be sure to listen to episode 56. It'll be linked in the show notes. As we are doing backwards design, we are essentially starting at the end, what students will essentially be able to do based on can-do statements, and then you plan backwards from there. So making sure that that assessment that you create at the very beginning of planning out a unit really responds to those three questions. Is it measurable? Is it appropriate for the level? And is it reliable? So make sure that instruction and assessment are aligned. And backwards planning is what helps us to do that. Because well-intentioned teachers, so teachers who are looking to move away from those legacy approaches and strive to incorporate communicative activities in class, often continue to have tests and quizzes that are based on the rules and vocabulary lists. And back on episode 21, Catherine Ritz, who happened to be on that flight back from uh, New Orleans with me over the summer, I had a conversation with her on episode 21, and she spoke with me about the five C's, the actful five C's. And we talked about the idea of teachers trying to retrofit legacy practices into the five C's and they understand the five C's they want to use them but they're not actually always modifying their teaching to make sure that they fit the five C's and they try to use what they've typically done and try to cram it into the five C's and she uses the word retrofit which I thought was awesome so I see a little bit of that same concept here when it comes to assessment where teachers are embracing proficiency but sometimes trying to retrofit legacy types of assessment practices into their proficiency-based classroom. I have certainly found myself in this situation as well. So the idea of 
backwards planning will help us to keep our instruction and our assessments aligned, where you start with that summative assessment, that summative proficiency-based assessment, and plan backwards from there, rather than teaching content and skills, and then trying to figure out how to assess. So when we look at those particular types of assessments, we can look at what we refer to as IPAs, which are integrated performance assessments, and then also how we're using rubrics to assess those goals. Henshaw and Hawkins give considerable time and attention to integrated performance assessment and rubrics in this particular chapter of Common Ground. So the goal of an IPA is to have at least three tasks by mode that build on each other in a way that students need to accomplish one before completing another. So essentially, if you want students to write about something in this IPA, this integrated performance assessment, perhaps that they first begin by reading. So it would be an interpretive reading task. And then based on what they understand or are able to pull from that text, they then write. So they won't be able to do the writing task without having first understood the reading. So that's what we're talking about when we say that each one is building on each other and they have to accomplish one before moving on to the other. So IPAs are challenging for a number of reasons. And this is one of those, the reality of the classroom situations because a lot of times within an IPA when it comes to that reading or even if it is a listening interpretive task we often want to find or as much as possible we want to find authentic resources and it's not always easy to find an authentic resource that will fit exactly into the type of assessment we want to do on a theme. So this is why I often find a really interesting authentic resource, whether it is a video or a piece of a podcast or an ad or some type of reading authentic text that I find. And then I end up using that to plan the unit rather than planning the unit out and then trying to find that authentic resource that will be part of the assessment at the end. It doesn't happen all the time, but I will often keep together a number of authentic resources in different modes that I don't know if I will ever use, but I think it's interesting and compelling for students that I have it on hand. And on Twitter, you can find them all the time. Teachers are always sharing out their authentic resources to use. So when it comes to the challenge of creating an IPA, that is one of them. And then there's also the idea of having interpersonal communication and how to have those interpersonal conversations with students to assess with that because there's time involved with it. What's the rest of the class doing? So there are some obstacles that come to doing an IPA, which is a really good way of doing an assessment because it makes sure that we are indeed assessing all of the modes and not just focusing on the writing or reading, so the presentational and interpretive modes. But it is absolutely totally worth it. And just some suggestions that I would give is try to do it one unit at a time. You might not be able to do it for every unit in a particular grade for the entire year. But once you have one, you can use it the second year, the third year that you might be doing that unit, tweak it a little bit. If you try to do every single one for every unit from the beginning, it might get a little frustrating. So try it out with one unit. And then what you'll find is some of those tasks that you create for it, you can actually use in other units. 
not necessarily the same authentic resource, but the task that students did on that assessment to engage with the resource, you can actually use again. And there's also the idea that if you have colleagues that are teaching the same level, that you can maybe split and collaborate the tasks that you're creating within an IPA so that you can both be creating it together. So that's the idea of, of IPAs, so definitely something to look into there. And if you have successful IPAs, please do share those out in the various social media channels where teachers are hanging out because we're always looking for new ideas with that. So the other part of this chapter goes into rubrics and how to provide students with feedback. I think that traditionally what we thought about with rubrics, it was a way of showing what your grade means. So you got a 87 out of 100 or you got a B plus out of an A plus scale and this is the reason why you got that grade and you can look on the rubric and see that. But it's not necessarily meant to provide feedback for where you go from there about what you can do so that next time you have a higher proficiency level or that your skills are a little different. Or if you've gone beyond that goal, you can say what the student specifically did that went beyond that goal and how they can continue to go even further. So when we look at rubrics, let's try to put the legacy approach of just providing the reason for the grade, but actually as a learning tool for where students can go from there. Like if they did not particularly meet the target, the proficiency target, you can say specifically what they can do to make sure that they are supported in meeting that target. Or if they went above, you can say with some specificity what they did as they went above. So Henshaw and Hawkins suggest that rather than using words like meets or does not meet expectations, that we should consider terms such as fully sustains, frequently sustains, or minimally sustains, so that we're not looking at you just met the goal or not, and it makes it more holistic, and the frequently and minimally and fully help us to see how often that's happening. And also the word sustains is really important because it's not that they're just able to do it once, but they're able to do it ongoing, which shows that they're solidly in that proficiency level. In episode 49, I did a summer headspace episode dedicated to rubrics with uh, Becky Bray Rankin and competency-based assessment with Ursula Askins-Huber. So if you go back to episode 49, you can do another deep dive into the ideas of rubrics and putting those together and also competency-based assessment. And they work really well along with this particular chapter in Common Ground to help grapple with how we actually assess those goals. And then we finish this particular part of Common Ground where we're talking about goals and assessments by looking at intercultural communication goals because I've been focusing very specifically on the linguistic goals of what students are able to do with the language. But goals in the language classroom should be more than just linguistic. They need to also involve an understanding and an ability to interact with the products, practices, perspectives, and the whole idea of intercultural competence. And many times by using authentic resources, 
we can embed cultural understanding right into what we're doing in the classroom. When we're focusing on linguistics, we can also have that cultural piece in there. But of course, there are going to be other times where we want to really specifically focus on culture and how to learn about culture and then how to engage with culture. And that's actually what the actful intercultural can-do statements tell us. They are broken up into investigation and then interaction. So it's learning about, and that's a great thing to start with, but we want to make sure that students are then able to use that knowledge to engage with the culture that they're learning about. As you read through the individual chapters of Common Ground, Henshaw and Hawkins put in these little sections called In Case You Were Wondering, and they're my favorite parts because it's as you're reading, you're like, but in my classroom, but what about this? And so they anticipate you might be thinking that. And in this section about intercultural communication goals, they put in the idea, in case you are wondering, what do we do about complex discussions about culture at the novice level? And Henshaw and Hawkins suggest that we wait the pros and cons of avoiding topics or oversimplifying that could be detrimental. So even if some of the conversation is not in the target language, does that mean that learning isn't happening? So we always keep in mind we want this 90% plus 100% use of target language in the classroom, and that's the goal. And so therefore, that's the only way learning is happening. But I think that what the authors are trying to show us here is that learning isn't just about the language in the classroom. It's not just linguistic goals. That when it comes to culture, that maybe there's an opportunity to explain a couple of things in native language just so that they understand it better. And that's learning. Learning is happening there. Of course, whenever there's sort of permission, I'm actually doing air quotes right now, when we have permission to do things like this, there's always this idea of the slippery slope. So, okay, I'm going to do this in English. I'm going to explain that in English. If that's okay, then I can do this in English or whatever the native language is. So just be aware of that as you're doing it. And my personal take on cultural topics And this is something that I always bring up when I do workshops on teaching culture. I'm doing air quotes again with teaching, teaching culture, is there's this fear or actual understanding of the reality that this is the only time students will have an opportunity to engage with this cultural phenomenon, this culture, this piece of culture. And so we want to make sure that they understand it completely. They don't walk away not understanding it and that there are no stereotypes. And it's because we don't think that's ever going to come around again. If you have the opportunity to collaborate departmentally and you make sure that certain cultural topics are recycled through at different levels, then the students can engage with the topic, that cultural topic, at different proficiency levels. So at the novice level, you can keep it entirely in the target language if they're just identifying things with single words or some memorized phrases. As they go up into the intermediate level, they can start doing comparisons about their culture and that culture to understand it better. And then through the advanced level, they can really start to engage and discuss and explain and ask questions about in the target language. But that requires having that same topic recycled through 
at the different proficiency levels. And I totally understand that we don't always have that ability or that power to make that happen within our departments. But if you are a department head or you have some way of collaborating with your department head to try to find some topics that you can recycle through uh, at different proficiency levels, that would be a way of keeping the target language the focus as you're talking about the different cultural elements that come up. But if that's not possible, just looking back at the suggestion that even if you are at the novice level explaining something quickly in the native language, don't feel as if there's no learning happening. There is learning happening. It's just not the linguistic focus. So to bring together everything that is encompassed in this idea of goals and assessment in Common Ground, there is that very useful, what does it look like in the classroom? And if you have the opportunity to have the book Common Ground, you can look at some of the examples of how IPAs are used and what rubrics actually look like in reality in the classroom. And much like Florencia says when she unpacks a research article, I again tell you that all of this and my suggestions and my reading of these chapters is just my take on it. And I encourage you to read it for yourself to get all the details and examples so that you can draw your own conclusions. And then please share those with me. I would love to learn more. So there's a link in the show notes to get your own copy of Common Ground. Florencia Henshaw mentioned to Hackett Publishing that I was going to do a series of episodes unpacking the book. And they reached out to me and offered a 25% discount on the book for listeners. So use the link in the show notes and be sure to use the discount code WLC2022. This will be available until the end of December 2022. So you can take advantage of it for the next couple of months if you're listening to this episode when it's published in September. So remember that I will also speak with Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins about the book Common Ground in the final episode in this series, which will be two episodes from now, but that will be published at the end of October 2022. And we'll take on some of the what ifs and what abouts. And I don't want to do this in a way that is a closed space or an echo chamber of just my thoughts and experiences. So please do share your thoughts. What are your whatabouts and personal experiences that you would actually like to have the opportunity to get direct feedback from Florencia and Maris so that when we have that discussion, it includes your thoughts and your ideas and your questions so that you can get some answers to them. So you can tweet me or message me on Instagram. I'm WLClassroom on both. Let me know whatever your questions or thoughts are so I can include them. You can also put them in my Facebook group. The link is in the show notes for that. Or email me, joshua at wlclassroom.com, any of those questions or insights that you would like included in my conversation with Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins. So I referred to a number of supporting companion episodes throughout this discussion, and they're all linked in the show notes. To help you understand some of these topics a little better or to really look at your understanding of them and make sure that you are 
really in a good place with really knowing what they are. And the first one was episode 12, which was the actful proficiency levels. And then episode 56, which was all about backwards planning. And then episode 49, which was rubrics and competency-based grading. So I am humbled and so appreciative of the fact that a number of the World Language Classroom podcast episodes are actually included on the Common Ground online resources website that is through through Hackett Publishing. So, so proud, so humble to be included. And what I particularly like about it is the episodes that they chose are really giving voices to classroom teachers. So they are episodes where I'm speaking to classroom teachers about what they are doing and what is effective for them. And by choosing those particular episodes, it's really showing that this book is about taking the theory and bringing it to the classroom. So be sure to check out the companion website along with Common Ground, whether or not you actually have the book. There are a lot of great resources on there. And as always in the show notes, uh, you'll see a link to sign up for Talking Points, which is my weekly email newsletter with tips and resources for language learning, along with links to get in touch with me if you'd like to work together, either in person in your school or remotely. And there's a lot going on in the show notes, so be sure you spend some time in there in addition to listening to the episode. And I've also added a section at the very, very bottom where you can reach out to me if you would like to be a guest on the podcast, because I'm always looking for teachers who are proud of what they do in the classroom and would enjoy having a conversation about it so that we can share it with the wider community of language teachers. So I hope you will consider doing that. There's also the link in the show notes to get the book Common Ground for 25% off through the Hackett Publishing website. So I hope you will take advantage of that if you don't have the book already. Okay, I'll leave it there for now and I will see you next week. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the World Language Classroom Podcast. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at WL Classroom. You can also see over 250 blog posts about language teaching at, you guessed it, wlclassroom.com.